Midtown Detroit studios of WDET. This is Detroit Today. President Joe Biden delivered his first post-midterm State of the Union yesterday to a now-divided Congress. We're going to unpack what he said with two members of Michigan's congressional delegation, Debbie Dingell and Alyssa Slotkin. We'll also talk with a Washington Post reporter about the speech and hear reactions from you, our listeners. That's all next on Detroit Today, but first the news from NPR. Detroit Today is supported by the Charles H. Wright Museum of African American History. Good day and welcome to Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm your host, Stephen Henderson, and I'm really glad you've decided to join us. Finish the job. That was the demand President Biden had for Congress as he uttered that phrase 12 times during his State of the Union address last night. During the address, President Biden spent a lot of time highlighting accomplishments from his first two years in office, both attempting to unite the parties by highlighting bipartisan achievements like the Chips and Science Act, while also touting a 50-year low in unemployment. But by using this phrase so heavily, Biden not only acknowledged the reality that he will need help from at least some House Republicans to accomplish his agenda moving forward, but he also attempted to place pressure on them to work with him and other Democrats to achieve those bipartisan results. It was a speech where the president not only showed a willingness to spar with a combative Republican audience, but challenged them as well to work with him on issues like balancing the budget and, of course, raising the debt ceiling without touching things like Medicare and Social Security. But how likely is any of this to actually occur? Is there any room at all for Democrats and Republicans to work together on the issues that were highlighted by Biden's speech? Even more, what are Democrats willing to do to obtain that kind of bipartisan support? A little later in the show, we are going to tackle those questions and more with New York Times correspondent Katie Rogers and with Congresswoman Debbie Dingell, who will join us near the end of the show. But right now, to get her perspective on the State of the Union, I'm joined by Representative Alyssa Slotkin, who serves as the Congresswoman for Michigan's new 7th Congressional District. Uh, Alyssa, welcome back to Detroit Today. Thanks for having me. Hi, Stephen. So let's start with that uh, message finish the job and the idea that the president was kind of trying to court, I think, uh, Republicans who might be less enamored with the, the combative nature of, uh, of parts of that caucus and uh, of the mind to get things done. How effective do you think that message was? And, and give us a sense of what this first month or so of Republican leadership uh, in the House has has said to you about the willingness to work with the president. Yeah, well, you know, I think any State of the Union, first of all, is like, you know, some theater um, and 
some policy on a good day, and that's what we saw yesterday. Um, you know, I, I wasn't sure when I was sitting on the House floor if folks at home could hear some of the noise coming out of the crowd. <laughs> there, there was um, certainly some heckling and jeering. There was lots of cheers. Um, so, you know, I think the, the president by kind of laid out um, his economic plan, his plan on, you know, gun violence, on uh, prescription drugs, and sort of challenged um, the Republicans to kind of join him on Team Normal. Right. Like, let's focus on real things. It wasn't a big cultural speech. It was just kind of a a hard um, policy uh, conversation. And, uh, you know, I I, I, there were certainly moments that were not um, bipartisan. But I think in his bones, he just holds out hope that we can actually work together, particularly on really big and important issues. And that came through in sort of a hopefulness yesterday. Uh, So. Let's talk about the tone in the chamber yesterday. I mean, I've been there for the State of the Union a, f- a few times, mm-hmm. and I guess I, I'm not accustomed to the kind of jeering and and shouting that, that some members yeah. uh, were doing yesterday. It does seem like a change. I, I wonder what you make of, for instance, uh, Marjorie Taylor Green standing up and shouting liar at the president during uh-huh. during the speech. Uh, is that the tone right now in Congress all the time? Um, you know, unfortunately, it, it has become more theater than anything else. Sometimes I feel like like Hollywood must have put in reality show TV cameras without <laughs> me knowing. And I'm somehow co-starring in this reality show. and No one got my signature release. Um, because we have theater like that a lot now. And um, I, I have to say, as someone who sat on the floor when President Trump gave his State of the Union, um, I agreed with very little that President Trump said. But the idea that I would jeer an American president just out of respect for the office um, is crazy. And so I don't like that. I don't think it sends the right signal to our kids who are watching. Um, and it's about them and not about the country, which they made very clear. He was clearly the president was clearly prepared for it. He knew it was coming. I thought that he he dispensed with it pretty well um, and sort of joked with them and and pushed back on them. But um, uh, it's not how I think anyone in the country wants their government to operate. Yeah, yeah. We're talking with uh, Congresswoman Alyssa Slotkin, who's a Democrat who represents Michigan's 7th Congressional District. Uh, We're talking about President Joe Biden's uh, State of the Union address last night to a joint session of Congress in Washington, what he said, what the reaction was, and uh, what the prospect for getting some of his agenda still enacted might be uh, now that uh, Republicans are in charge of of the House of Representatives. Uh, Alyssa, one thing uh, that he, he, he made clear last night was that uh, he was not in the mood at all to discuss cuts to Medicare or Social Security yeah. uh, as a way of solving our financial problems. There was kind of a funny exchange with the Republicans over that where mm-hmm. he said, look, you guys have put that on the table. I'm not interested. They said that they that they hadn't. He said, well, well that's good. Uh, we can move on. Uh, but but what are the the pressures, I guess, to, to, to cut costs and to stop overspending in Washington? And what are the places that we should be looking to try to take care of that? Yeah, first of all, that was a big moment, I think, on the floor yesterday, um, because <laughs> the Republicans, it was sort of one of those, like, thou doth protest too much. You know, they were so <laughs> appalled that the president would accuse 
some of their caucus of threatening to cut Social Security and Medicare. And yet, literally, I can show you in writing Rick Scott's plan to mm-hmm. cut Social Security and Medicare. Uh, Mike Lee came out um, at, right after the, the State of the Union and said, the president mischaracterized us and how dare he. And yet we're all looking at footage this morning of him talking in a private group um, some years ago about how we desperately need to cut Social Security and Medicare. And we have a Michigan Republican just this past week, one of my colleagues, who said, look, folks, it's just math. We're going to have to make cuts to Social Security. So this idea that it was just crazy that Joe Biden raised this was really disingenuous, I think. Um, and, you know, he's, he's not going to do it. He's not going to touch it. Mm-hmm. Um, I think then that leaves us um, with this inevitable question How do you make sure we can pay all of our bills? How do you make sure that we are um, able to afford the things that we want to spend on? And I think the president talked a lot about making sure the very wealthy, the ultra-rich and ultra-rich corporations pay their fair share. Not more, not gratuitous, but like, you know, companies making a billion dollars should pay 15% in tax the way a teacher or a firefighter would. He made that point And I think that's where you lose the Republicans, right? Because any additional taxes in their mind is a betrayal. Um, but the, but again, if they, if they like math, um, then in order to make the math work and not cut things they care about too, big defense spending, um, you know, not touch social security, Medicare, the math has to work out somewhere. And that comes in the form of taxing the ultra wealthy. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. When, when we talk about that though, I mean, that's been a non-starter for a pretty long time in, in Washington. And in fact, the last president uh, gave a very large tax cut uh, that, that was really targeted at, at, at high income earners. I mean, is it even, is it even reasonable to be talking about uh, a tax increase, even if it were targeted at corporations and wealthy individuals uh, in the current climate? Is there any way we could get something like that done? Look, there's there's no doubt about it. That's going to be um, difficult to get past a Republican House. But I think it's a way to call their bluff on on this debt limit issue. Right. I mean, we are teetering on the edge of defaulting and just on a global scale, having our credit rating going down. And what we're saying is, look, you keep saying you don't you're worried about the debt. Either come to the table and have a real conversation and include things like taxing the ultra wealthy um, or stop playing chicken with us because we're not touching Medicare and Social Security. And and what I, I so I just think it's an, an it's an effective conversation to be having right now because they're threatening our credit rating and going over the debt limit. Um, I, do I think we're going to do radical changes to the tax code? No. Um, but do I think that it's important to to make people be accountable for what they're threatening? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I also want to spend some time talking with you uh, because of uh, your national security and intelligence uh, yeah. background with uh, about this this balloon that uh, that the Chinese yeah. flew over. Uh, the United States. Lots of folks are pretty upset about that. They're upset about the way the president uh, responded. They think he should have responded more quickly. Uh, we've also learned in the last few days that this is not the first time this has happened. Yeah. That uh, it happened a few times while Donald Trump was president, and we didn't shoot it down. But I- I'm curious about your take. Again, given your background in this uh, in this area, on how concerned we should be about uh, what the Chinese are doing and and how we respond to it. 
Yeah. So first of all, I think when we look at national security issues, we look at the facts and we look at the intent. And the fact that the Chinese government felt comfortable setting out these balloons, and I say plural, um, over the U.S. homeland um, on the eve of a big summit with the Secretary of State, Tony Blinken, which was ostensibly to reset the relationship, to me, that is a bold decision. It's not to say that what was on the balloon was uh, and anything that was a physical danger to anyone, but the fact that they felt comfortable doing it and that this claim that it just, oh, it just got blown off course. Well, guess what? When you're good neighbors and something gets blown off course, you inform the neighbor, mm-hmm. right? You mm-hmm. let them know, and they did not do that. So we understand that their intent um, was aggressive and assertive. Um, the truth is the balloon itself, was clearly, in some form or fashion, a surveillance pa- carrying a surveillance package. What we want to know is exactly what was on there. Why are they flying balloons instead of relying on satellite data? What would be the value to them? What's on that thing that makes it so valuable that they would risk antagonizing us? So we had a hearing yesterday in the Armed Services Committee, had a four-star general, former head of the, the Pacific Command, so the folks who handle Asia, and our relationships in Asia. And he said, I would have done the same thing. Wait for it to go over water, shallowish water, uh, shoot it down, and then collect all the data that was on that balloon. And that's what we're doing right now. Now, I, I was not obviously read in on the decision making around shooting down the balloon. But let me say, there are plenty of things that we can do while that thing is still flying to make sure that it's not a threat, that it's not collecting over us. Um, there's more than just shooting it down that we have in our toolkit. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I think the, the fact remains, this is an aggressive new step. Um, it's, it is not good in the, in the situation we have with the Chinese government. Um, it risks a cycle of escalation that no one wants. Um, and I think we're, what I want to hear more from the administration is, yes, you canceled this big summit, but what's the next step? What's the plan? What is, how are we approaching this since the Chinese have have taken it another step further. Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, I know that you uh, are going to have to run in a minute, but I, I've got you here. I would be remiss oh. if I didn't ask <laughs> you uh, about the upcoming open Senate seat here in Michigan. Debbie Stabenow has said she is not going to seek re-election in 2024. Your name has come up uh, a number of times uh, in the conversations, the public conversations uh, about this. Uh, tell me what you're thinking. Tell me what you're thinking about it. Yeah, well, it was a big surprise. I think, I think probably to everybody. Um, certainly was a surprise to me when the senator made that announcement. It's like an earthquake in Michigan politics. Um, and so I'm thinking about it. I mean, I, but it's a really big decision, you know, running uh, a Senate campaign, running statewide. You know, I've run in competitive races in my own district, but that's one part of the state. So I'm just talking to as many people as I can. I'm trying to get as many views as I can across the state. Um, and I'll make a decision, but it's a big one, so I'm not going to rush into it. But, of course, I am definitely thinking about it. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I really appreciate you giving us the time uh, this morning. And also, uh, congratulations on recently being named co-chair of the Congressional Cyber Security Caucus. That's uh, a pretty important uh, position as well. But uh, thank, thank you, you for joining us on uh, Detroit Today. Always great to talk with you. Thanks so much. Have a good one. We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we are going to get a Washington perspective on the State of the Union with New York Times correspondent Katie Rogers. Also a little later in the program, another member of Michigan's congressional delegation, Debbie Dingell, will join us to give her 
her re- give us her reactions. We also want to get going with you guys on the phones and on social. 313-577-1019 is the number here. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today. Call and tell us what your reaction is to the State of the Union and the reaction to the State of the Union. Some rudeness from members of Congress toward the president. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. Today, I'm Stephen Henderson, and glad that you've joined us. President Biden spent a lot of his address last night attempting to sway at least some Republicans to work with him in a bipartisan fashion, doing things like complimenting Republicans for accomplishments during uh, his first two years as president, while also putting some pressure on them to come to the negotiation table. But despite this, at times, it was a pretty raucous address, with congressional Republicans shouting directly at the president, who also showed a willingness to go off script and call out his hecklers. But does this say anything about the dynamics in Washington moving forward? What does it mean for issues like the debt ceiling and, of course, the national deficit and debt? To help answer these questions and more, we're now joined by Katie Rogers. She is a White House correspondent for The New York Times. Katie, welcome to Detroit Today. Thank you so much for having me. So I've been there for uh, the State of the Union a few times, and uh, it's usually a pretty uh, austere event. And uh, (laughs) last night struck me (laughs) as a little more raucous. Uh, Right. Talk about what was going on in the chamber uh, last night. I mean, so one of my key questions to the White House after the speech was whether or not they knew that they were going to walk into an environment like like the one the president walked into last night. Um, and I think the indicators are yes, you know, that there's a newly ascendant, you know, Republican House. There is an insurgent wing within that House um, that is uh, very afraid, unafraid to sort of um, do and say things that will make sort of a viral moment or get headlines. I, I'm thinking of somebody like... Uh, uh, Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene, uh, uh, Congresswoman Lauren Boebert, mm-hmm. um, and and others um, who are part of sort of that group. Um, so I, I think the atmosphere was one of, you know, a, a certain extent of bipartisan comedy. You saw um, Speaker McCarthy willing to, you know, smile and shake hands and sort of warmly greet the president and the vice president. But you really did see and feel sort of the the interplay between, you know, a more um, hardline sect of the, the Republican House and, uh, uh, well, there there is no really moderate <laughs> wing, but it's more just, I guess I'll say the ones who were willing to shout and the ones who were not. Right. Um, and you could really feel that. And what does that mean for... I guess the overall tone of of the mm. session of of Congress. I mean, there there was at least to the television eye. I think 
there was a, a, a an air of theater to what they were doing last night, right? I For mean, sure. they, they know yeah. they're on television. They know people are paying attention. It's a way to get people riled right. up. But but you've got to right. go to work every day exactly. and, and pass legislation. I mean, does this speak to the difficulty that the White House will have working with this uh, well, with this caucus? I think so, and I think you know. I think you had mentioned the debt limit as one of the issues where, you know, the Biden White House is really going to have to find some sort of, of, um, you know, they're they're going to have to sort of find a counterpart in uh, somebody like Speaker McCarthy to really um, take these negotiations seriously and in good faith. And I think, you know, um, the president and the speaker actually know each other. Not well, but well enough. Mm-hmm. Um, the speaker used to head over to the vice president's resident, residence for breakfast with then-President Biden. Um, they have a rapport. Um, so what is unclear is still whether or not, you know, the president outlining the need to work together, the need to not hold things like the debt ceiling hostage, whether or not that's going to translate to negotiations is something that we will see Probably pretty soon, I think. Yeah, yeah. So I, I want to play a, a, a clip from the speech and then talk about this issue of Social Security and Medicare and what has been said, what hasn't been said, and some kind of odd uh, uh, denial, I suppose, uh, uh-huh. about about the Republican position. But let's first listen to that exchange during the speech. Okay. Some of my Republican friends want to take the economy hostage. I get it, unless I agree to their economic plans. All of you at home should know what those plans are. Instead of making the wealthy pay their fair share, some Republicans, some Republicans want Medicare and Social Security to sunset. I'm not saying it's a majority. Let me give you, anybody who doubts it, contact my office. I'll give you a copy. I'll give you a copy of the proposal. That means Congress doesn't vote. Well, I'm glad to see you. No, I tell you, I, I enjoy conversion. As we all apparently agree, Social Security and Medicare is off the, off the books now, right? They're not to be sponsored. All right. We got unanimity. So, I mean, that's yeah. a, it's a funny exchange in some ways, but but I, I was surprised, I guess, that Republicans had the reaction they did because mm-hmm. there are lots of Republicans who have said in public and and probably way more in private uh, that they do want to cut Social Security in particular as a way of uh, mm-hmm. making up. So, so what what is really, I guess, uh, the the state of play on this issue and the tension between. The idea of cutting Social Security and Medicare and instead raising taxes uh, on corporations or the wealthy uh, to make up that money. Yeah, so I think what what struck me last night when Republicans sort of had this like visceral reaction to the president essentially baiting them into into, you know, either sitting down or applauding or, or reacting was my, my first instinct was, wow, to your point about you know, people privately and publicly saying things, 
that people tend to change their behavior when they're on uh, <laughs> national television, don't they? Yeah. <laughs> um, the, the reaction is, you know, it it uh, it sort of undercuts the reality, is, which is, you know, people like Senator Rick Scott of Florida have proposed uh, programs like this that would, would sunset nearly all federal spending programs, um, and that would make Medicare and Social Security more vulnerable to budget cuts. That is a reality that... Um, influential Republicans have sort of signaled um, could happen. Um, the president, of course, has repeatedly said he would not agree to cuts to Social Security, um, which provides retirement and disability pay to some, I think, 66 Americans, or Medicare, which provides health insurance to about, I think, 64 million people in this country. Mm-hmm. Um, so his proposal is uh, to uh, target this through taxing the wealthy, um, and I think, like, you'll see this interplay going forward. Um, the problem is, of course, that um, it's a divided Congress, and um, I think it'll be a bit of a political football until we understand what's what's likely to happen and what's not. Yeah. We're talking with uh, Katie Rogers. She's a White House correspondent for The New York Times. Uh, she covers life in the Biden administration and Washington culture and domestic policy. Uh, we're talking about the president's first post-midterm State of the Union address, which happened last night in Washington. A uh, pretty raucous address, a raucous uh, response to the address in the chamber uh, several times, something that we don't always see uh, when the president is speaking to Congress. Uh, we'd love to hear from you, the listeners as well, uh, about your reactions to the speech. What did you think of what the president said? What did you think of the tone uh, in the chamber as he delivered his address? Does this speak to the difficulty that we're going to have over the next two years actually seeing things get done in Washington because Republicans now control the House uh, of Representatives? As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today and we can uh, include you in the conversation that way. Let's go to John on the east side. John, welcome to the show. Thank you, Stephen. Yeah, go ahead. Can you hear me? Yep, go ahead. So I wasn't able to watch this due to work last night, and I'm glad because I, I really get tired of all this stuff. But we, we <laughs> remember back to uh, when Barack Obama first addressed Congress, somebody called out him a liar. Mm-hmm. And Presidents are a terrible thing. They really are, you know. Once you go there, you you're there. So, and and as far as Social Security, Medicaid is concerned, you know, we all pay taxes in there, and all we've been hearing about is the lowest unemployment rate in 60 years. So we have plenty of people paying into these funds. If they were managed right, and everybody paid into them, they would be fine. And it just mm-hmm. seems like. There's certain people on this planet that want people not to be able to pay their bills. Yeah. Uh, John, I, I, I love the call and I love uh, the comments. And I think uh, you're right that the, the, the stressing over Social Security, the, the, the focus on it uh, by Republicans is a little odd, uh, given that you know, it, does, it does work pretty well. Uh, there are some problems with uh, with you know uh, investment in it, and you're right. We could invest more heavily in it and make it work for everyone. Um, you know, Katie, th- th- this idea 
though, that um, uh, that you could fix Social Security or Medicare by cutting back on on benefits. Um, mm-hmm. Let's talk for just for a second about what kind of reaction Republicans would get if they even proposed that. Let's say they drafted a bill that would do that mm-hmm. in the House. I imagine that that would backfire in ways uh, that would look like what happened to them in the midterm election just a few weeks ago or a, f- a few months ago. Well, did you see, I mean, just to take it back to the speech, you know, I, w- one of the reasons I thought that sort of interplay between the president and Republicans was so remarkable was that toward the end of it, um, I'm sure we all saw it, was, you know, the president said, well, we agree. These things are settled. This matter is settled. It looks like we're all in agreement. Let's stand up for seniors. And then the speaker stood up and several Republicans actually stood up and clapped. That is an indicator, you know, at least to me, that that would certainly backfire, that these Republicans would actually be beholden to these decisions in a way that would be politically harmful for them. Otherwise, they would not have stood up at President Biden's command like that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, again, 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. I want to play uh, another clip uh, and talk a little about the response from Sarah Huckabee Sanders, who's now the governor of mm. Arkansas, to the president's um, uh, address. This was also kind of a strange uh, a strange turn. It's uh, pretty in, dark. Yeah, but, but let's listen to just a little bit of what she said. I'm the first woman to lead my state, and he's the first man to surrender his presidency to a woke mob that can't even tell you what a woman is. In the radical left's America, Washington taxes you and lights your hard-earned money on fire, but you get crushed with high gas prices, empty grocery shelves, and our children are taught to hate one another on account of their race, but not to love one another or our great country. Whether Joe Biden believes this madness or is simply too weak to resist it, his administration has been completely hijacked by the radical left. So the the full lean into the idea of culture wars was an uh-huh. odd turn, I thought, for the response uh, to, to the president's address. And it, it was odd given the 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 position that the Republican Party, I think, is in right now, uh, having not done as well as they had hoped in in the midterms. But I wonder what your reaction was to, to Huckabee Sanders. I thought it was interesting for the same reason, actually. I think that the burden on the president and in the White House going into this speech is that polling shows, like these are very flashing red polling numbers for Biden that show that are, uh, I think four in 10 Americans don't feel that they're better off than they were four years ago. Financially, um, polling also shows that Americans don't necessarily understand how Biden White House economic policies benefit them. Um, and so the president had to go in there and really correct what is seen as a messaging problem for, for this administration. And um, it sort of shocked me that the Republican response did not uh, really come after the, the economic-related proposals. I think that time and time again, um, the Republican Party does sort of turn to these so-called culture war moments mm-hmm. to galvanize um, broad, a broad base of supporters. But you're absolutely right. I think voters showed in the midterms that 
they don't want to be involved in culture wars. The, you know, the Roe, the overturning of Roe was a huge galvanizing point for voters to come out. Um, and uh, so, yeah, it was surprising that the, the response was not economic focus, but more sort of like red meat, mm-hmm. you know, chum for, for, uh, for, for, for conservative voters who have shown that they're not full in on this. Yeah, yeah. Okay, uh, Katie Rogers of the New York Times. Uh, it was really great to have you here with us on Detroit Today. Thank Thanks you. so much for joining. Thank you so much. Yeah. When we come back, we are going to be joined by another member of Michigan's congressional delegation. Representative Debbie Dingell will join us to give us her take on the State of the Union and the response from the congressional chamber. Also want to continue to hear from you on the phones and on social. 313-577-1019 is the number. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today. We'll work you into the conversation that way. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. This is Detroit Today. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, I'm glad you've joined us. During his State of the Union address, President Biden asserted that the State of the Union was strong. Meanwhile, the Republican response from Arkansas Governor Huckabee Sanders characterized America as under attack from a left-wing culture war, where she said, freedom is at stake. But which of these messages actually reflects the will of the American people? And how will Congress respond That's where we continue the conversation here on Detroit Today and help answer those questions and more. I'm joined by Congresswoman Debbie Dingell. She is a congresswoman who represents uh, Michigan's 6th Congressional District. Debbie, welcome back to Detroit Today. Stephen, it is great to be back with you and happy February. Yes, happy February to you as well. So uh, what do you make of uh, President Biden's address and his vision, but but also uh, the response, the response in the chamber during the speech, uh, the response afterward from uh, Governor Huckabee Sanders? Uh, Republicans seem a little at sea, I think, uh, in, in terms of how to answer the things that uh, that the president is putting out there on the table. So it was a complicated night. I thought the president gave a great speech. I think he tried very hard to uh, reach out to say we need to work together. And as you know, I'm one of those people who thinks that the American people are tired of the partisan bickering. They're still worried about a lot of issues, and they want us to work together to address the issues that they're talking about at the dinner table um, every single night. I think the president laid out what the accomplishments were uh, in the last two years, how we are fixing our roads and bridges, but we've got a lot more to do. I was very excited to hear him say that we should be using federal tax dollars to support American-made products as we're doing these things. And I think the other exciting thing for me last night, as you know, seniors are something that some people that I care about deeply, and I hope we put for rest the idea 
Senator Scott's been talking about cutting Medicare and Social Security for a long time, and mm-hmm. they all said they didn't want to do it. Marjorie Taylor Greene called him a liar, which I thought was inappropriate. Um, but I take the reaction last night to be one of unity. We won't cut Medicare and Social Security. Mm. You know, I want to say this. I, I really was disappointed in the governor's response. Uh, I think she reflected um, the mega Republicans that we are concerned about. And I think there's a whole lot of people, um, I don't even like saying the middle. I think, you know, when you look at polling, which as you know, I don't trust to begin with because polling is more wrong than right these days. Mm-hmm. But I think there are a lot of people that don't think the Republican or Democrat, they're Americans. They just are worried about their lives, that they want their children to be better off than they are. And they're tired of all this extremism on both sides. So, so I, I, I think it was really interesting that uh, that Huckabee Sanders took the the position that she did. I want to inject a caller here, though, who I think really illuminates exactly what you're talking about, which is this frustration that people across the political spectrum I think have with this. Uh, Perry in Detroit. Perry, uh, welcome to the show. Uh, thank you, Stephen, mm-hmm. uh, for taking my call. And the Congresswoman uh, is absolutely correct. And I am a Republican, by the way, at least I would like to be. But it's not about being Republican. It's not about being uh, Democrat. It's not about being independent. It's about being an American. And unfortunately, uh, the party that's in charge of Congress just seems to be Neither. It just seems to be a part. It's embarrassing. It just seems to be a party of just fear mongering, outright disinformation, and no viable working solutions for the everyday common American. Forget what political affiliation that you have. I mean, it's just all about just being against something, not being for anything. And I just think that that uh, performance last night, especially. The governor of Arkansas, I just think that it was embarrassing. It had absolutely nothing to do with helping people who are having problems with yeah. the high price of gas, with the high price of sure. eggs, or with not being, being able to care for the sick loved ones. And, I, yeah. I, and, and again, I appreciate you for taking my call. Perry, I, 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 I'm glad you're... Yeah, I'm glad you called in, and and I think that's a really important perspective because, as you say, you are a Republican or would like to be, uh, but you're not hearing from them the things that uh, that would make you vote uh, for them, you know, uh, or, or support support their issues. Um, so, so Debbie, I, I know that you're somebody who always wants to reach across the aisle and find people. Uh, who who can work with you and and help get things done in the, in a bipartisan manner? Uh, you've lost uh, recently um, one of your best partners, Fred Upton, another uh, congressperson from Michigan who's who's no longer there in in Washington. I wonder if you can talk about some names of people on that side of the aisle who now you feel. You can work with. I mean, I think there there isn't a lot of focus on that dynamic and that ability, um, which still it still remains in some way. So 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 tell us about the the folks who are Republicans in Congress that you think um, you can reach across and 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 find common ground with. Well, first of all, I want to thank Perry for his comments, and I, I 
think more of us feel like we're Americans and Republicans or Democrats, and I think that's what we all have to remember first and foremost. And I am somebody. I think that we're always stronger when we do things in a bipartisan way in the committee, uh, Energy and Commerce Committee. We consider bills first and consider amendments first that are bipartisan. Last night, I was on an aisle, but John James was right across from me, and we sat and talked for an hour. And I'm working on many pieces of legislation already. Kathy McMorris-Rogers, who's the new chair of the House Energy and Commerce Committee, very close friend. We talked about autonomous vehicles, how that needs to be one of the top priorities of what we address in committee. Kathy and I share concerns about people with disabilities, people on health care. I was very happy to hear the president talk about long-term care last night. As you know, it's one of my passions. I'm the one that's got the bill that the president talked about. And I said this to somebody else. You know, caregiving in this country is a crisis, be it whether it's child care or senior care. Mm-hmm. 54% of the people over 50 are caring for a senior, and they can't get help. Spouses who are taking care of their spouses are like ready to drop because they can't even get respite care. These aren't partisan issues. These are the reality of the world that we're living in, and we got to help find solutions. Yeah. Yeah. Again, 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. Let's go to Charlie in Royal Oak. Charlie, welcome to the show. Thank you. Um, you said a little while ago you were surprised that Huckabee Sanders leaned into the culture wars. I'm not because, frankly, that's all Trump and the MAGA crowd have. They don't have any other platform. They don't have any ideas. They just you know, want to do like Adolf Hitler and get people worked up and mad and hate each other. That's all they got. So, Charlie, I mean, look, uh, that's certainly how a lot of them are behaving. And and, uh, I guess what for me the surprise was that this was an opportunity, I think, uh, to to offer a different economic vision. Right? You get the you right. get the stage after the president, and and he was very explicit about the things he wants to do policy wise. This was a chance to say, well, here here's our different vision. Hey, you know, uh, clear up some of the, the the questions about that. And so, it's not that I'm surprised uh, that they. They like the culture war dynamic, and and certainly that was how they tried to win the midterm elections last year. Um, but it, again, it was the lost opportunity. Uh, Debbie, I wonder what you make of of that lost opportunity, and what you think uh, Republicans are are offering uh, in in a, in exchange to to the president's ideas. What are their economic ideas, uh, if it's not to cut Social Security and Medicare, which apparently, you know, all of them seem to agree last night that it wasn't. So, you know, first of all, Republicans aren't monolithic. Democrats aren't monolithic. Right, right. Uh, So, you know, everybody wants to say all of that. It's not clear to me. I mean, clearly one of the proposals they had was to impose a 30 percent a tax on uh, a sales tax on everybody, which Kevin McCarthy put distance between himself and uh, and said he would absolutely oppose it last week, would have increased the taxes on working men and women by thousands of dollars and decreased the taxes on billionaires and wealthy millionaires uh, by millions of dollars. 
Um, so, you know, we got to figure this out. We do need to balance the budget, but how do you get there and how do you do it? And the fact of the matter is that when we gave the, when the tax cuts happened under Donald Trump, that was the biggest increase to the deficit we've seen because we cut corporations taxes. We have, I think what we all want and what I really believe some Republicans want is for everybody to pay their fair share. Nobody should be burdened, but billionaires and corporations should be paying their fair share. Uh, And I think that's one thing. And, uh, you know, we've got to look at what the different solutions are. We really need a very serious look at how we reduce the deficit, but also meet this country's needs. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, again, three one three five seven seven one zero one nine is the number here on the phones. You can also go to Twitter and hashtag us, and we can include you that way. Uh, Debbie, I want to talk about something that I that I noticed at the end of the speech last night that that, that kind of bothered me. Um, so, I mean, I, I, I know, and most people know that that Joe Biden, you know, spent the majority of his career in Congress uh, and most of it in the Senate. And so when he goes to deliver the State of the Union, um, you know, there's a familiarity uh, and a, a, a sense of comfort, I think, that he has with with the chamber. But and he's somebody who's going to linger there and try to talk to folks uh, before he leaves, which is not what uh, every president has done. But last night, uh, I, I saw a number of people uh, that, that who stopped the president to take pictures with him on their phones and to try to kind of fawn over him uh, or the cameras that were that were following him. And I. Th- thought to myself that if I were if I were an American who feels the way I think a lot of Republicans do right now about uh, power and money and uh, distance from Americans, that would have bothered me. And, and, and I'll also note that I saw you on television uh, near the end as the president was leaving. You went up and just kind of said hello and then what about your business? I mean, you were not doing the same thing that a lot of these other members were. And there is there is a cultural dynamic in this country of um, resentment uh, toward power and the idea that it is all so distant from people's lives. And I wonder if, if you were struck the same way uh, by that scene on the floor after the speech. So I'm going to say several things. Um, One, Joe Biden loves people. And if he didn't want to be with people, he wouldn't have been. He would have gotten out of there. Uh, And a lot of people like to, um, you know, be near the president, have an opportunity to make a point. And I think, you know, it was... Um, I felt bad for him. I felt bad for the staff that worked with him because it got pretty crowded at some point. Mm -hmm. Uh, But he's a really human guy. Unfortunately, I forgot um, uh, that there was mic on him or there were people near. So unfortunately, I had a very personal conversation with the president, which was recorded and tweeted out, Mm -hmm. um, which... I mean, but it shows the humanness of him, as we both talked about yesterday was the anniversary of John's, of John's death. death. Yes, And Biden's son, Bo's birthday is two days before then, and that's how we both remember um, the anniversary of both. But Joe Biden likes people. 
it's nice to have a president that doesn't want to be isolated. So, and, you know, there were Republicans there that wanted to say hello to him as much as Democrats. And I think that improves the environment in which we live. And I just, I think it's great to have a president that's willing to be with people. Yeah, yeah. Uh, again, 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. Let's go to Daniel in Detroit. Daniel, what's on your mind? Well, I, would, I wanted to ask Debbie um, if she felt like real campaign finance reform, talking like no money in politics whatsoever, the politicians aren't allowed to ask for money for any reason. It's somehow publicly funded the campaigns if she feels like there would be more bipartisan legislation hmm. and less fighting in Washington. And, and how do we get to that? Yeah. Is this like something we can do on the streets? Can we get a petition together? Can we, how do we fix this? Because from my perspective, the money in politics and p- politicians asking for money from people is the bulk of our problems in the world That's interesting. Right Daniel, great point. I would point out again, I always do this when we talk about this, you know, we do have a First Amendment to our Constitution that gives us a right to petition for a redress of grievances, which uh, we interpret as, um, you know, the freedom to support candidates. And, and we, we believe that money is part of that. But uh, but Debbie, respond to his idea that, that we'd be better off with public financing of, of uh, campaigns. Well, I'm going to divide that question into two parts. First of all, Stephen knows this, and anybody who knows me knows I hate to raise money. Yeah. Worst part of the job, hate to do it, and everybody knows it because I just – I don't look at people and monetize them. I want to be with people because I want to know what's on their mind and I want to fight for them. I want to help them and I want to do what's right. So I'm so with you on the money part of this. I can't tell you. But, and Stephen's right, it would be very, the ability to get public financing is, I mean, there's even money in that system to defeat it from happening. Unfortunately, I think it's probably also idealistic to think that taking the money out of the system and going to public financing would keep um, the extremists on both sides from still being who they are because there's still that element of power, money and power. But some abuse that power that they have, and there are others who really just want to make our country better. I do believe that our country is strong. I think we spend way too much time focusing on what divides us rather than what unites us. I think vitriolicness and rhetoric and hate and divisiveness have become too easy. And I don't care what, who you are, Republican or Democrat, I hope all of us who aren't an extreme on one side or the other will start to fight back against that kind of division, this ugliness we see in our country, because that, I believe, is the biggest threat to our democracy. Yeah, yeah. Okay, uh, Debbie Dingle, uh, always great to have you here on the show, but especially great today on the day after the President's State of the Union address. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Wonderful being with all of you. Take care. That is going to do it for us today. Come back tomorrow when I'm going to be joined by historian Danielle McGuire as we discuss the history of policing and violent policing here in the city of Detroit. Also, if you love the show and love listening in general, please share this with your friends, with your relatives, with anyone you know. You can find us on WDET.org or on our Detroit Today podcast. 
This is WDETFM, Detroit's NPR station, your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk again tomorrow.